What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode four of Your Asian Best Friends. I'm Bernard. And I'm Taylor. And if this is your first time listening, big welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you've listened to our first three episodes, I'm impressed that you're, <laughs> you're still with us. Yeah, that's quite the uh, quite the amount of dedication from our, our small amount of Good listeners. for you. Good for you if you're still with us. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, we're talking about... I've got a surprise for you, Taylor. Oh, you know how much I love surprises. Yeah, you're like that kind of guy. Yeah, I love them. <laughs> you love like surprise parties. I love them. I can't get enough of them. Yeah. Scavenger hunts. <laughs> yeah. Especially if it's like a group activity, get a bunch of people <laughs> yeah. together. With other human beings. Yeah, especially if I, if I don't know them, like that's even better. <laughs> that's, what if like someone was listening and they didn't catch the sarcasm at all? <laughs> you know, it's like their first time. And they think you're like the the like sunny uh, social butterfly of the two. They're like, okay, he likes surprises. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a surprise um, from Wes Anderson's new film, The French Dispatch, which mm-hmm. is out in theaters now. I have not Wes Anderson because <laughs> he's standing right behind me. <laughs> yeah, not Wes Anderson, but I have American Asian American actor Stephen Park. Uh, right. I had an awesome conversation with Mr. Park, who's a, a veteran of the film industry. He was in Do the Right Thing, Fargo. Um, really, re- been in the game for a long time. He was mm-hmm. on In Living Color as well. Dang. Yeah, so I, I had a really good conversation with him, and, and we talked a lot about um, what it's like right now for uh, Asian actors. Wow, that must be really interesting for somebody that's been in it for that long, because I it does feel like things are starting to slowly change beneath yeah. them, right? He had some really, really interesting uh, insights about that, so we'll get to that later. Uh, and also, I wanted to talk about Something that Taylor and I both went through, kind of together, just simply what it's like growing up in a white town Oh, as an Asian. We grew up in a very white town here in the Bay Area. Yeah. And it was kind of weird. Yeah. No, definitely. I, I can talk a lot about that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got, we've got a great show for you today. I'm really excited to talk about all that. But before that, uh, how have you been? It's been a while since we... <laughs> What happened? We haven't recorded one of these in a while. Yeah, your car broke. <laughs> My car did break. I need a new car. And I can attest, having been in that car with you, that it did feel, it felt like it was on its last legs. Hell on wheels. It, it did. And I'm, I'm excited for you whenever you get a new car, how fast you're going to be able to go. And you're going to be able to pass all those people that you want to pass. And it's going to be like a whole new world for you. <laughs> yeah, it was chugging, man. That thing was on its last legs. Uh, but, you know, Taylor and I, we, we took a little bit of a... We didn't take a break from recording. We just... we were Real just life, man. Real life. Yeah. We went to a film festival. Film festival. Um, kids. <laughs> Work. Work. But um, no, it was worthwhile, I think, for the show, as it pertains to the show, because um, this this movie, um, The French Dispatch, for which I interviewed Stephen Park, was at the film festival. So it'll be good stuff for the show. Why didn't you take me? I took you to... <laughs> <laughs> I took you to a couple things. You did. No, it was great. What did I take you to? You took me to uh, Come On, Come On. Yeah, I took you to see um, Come On, Come On. By the way, this is from the Mill Valley Film Festival here in the Bay Area. I've been covering it for years. They're really good people, and it's an awesome film festival. If you live in the Bay Area, you've never been in the festival, uh, go next year, like in October. Really good people, and they're a Bay Area-centric festival, which means like they spotlight local filmmakers uh, as well as like international um, films as well. But Taylor, I took you to come on, come on. Yeah. Tell, uh, tell listeners about that night. Cause that was kind of a special night. Yeah, man. What a movie. I mean, that was, that was incredible. Uh, I think, you know, having the filmmaker there to Wh- which was Mike Mills, Mike Mills from Mike R. Mills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Grammy <laughs> Award winning Mike Mills. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was just a beautiful film. Like, I honestly have not been able to stop thinking about it. Yeah? Yeah. And in some ways, you know, I think, you know, the film, you want to give it, you're much, you're, do this as a professional. Do you want to give a rundown of the film? For uh, us, yeah. So it stars Joaquin Phoenix um, as uh, what is it? What's his job? He's like a sound. He's a documentarian. He's a documentarian, but like I guess I should audio documentary. I know. Why am I <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I got it. Joaquin uh. <laughs> Phoenix plays this like uh, audio documentarian who is babysitting his nephew for a while yeah while his sister um deals with her partner's like mental issues yeah basically and helps him through his struggles and so joaquin's character and his nephew spend the entire movie together and they they kind of joaquin's character kind of goes through a lot of the same same things that parents go through like first time parents where you're kind of figuring out how to interact with this little person who's growing and is sometimes a jerk and is sometimes really sweet. Yeah. And a lot of that resonated with Taylor and I. Oh, completely. And I think it's, you know, I think as we both know as parents, it's you never stop learning or being surprised by your kids and you never stop trying to grow as a parent as well. And even after the film, like I was like, shit, I gotta get my act together. And I've Mm. worked really hard to be like a better dad since that film that's awesome dude i didn't know that that's cool. yeah i started awesome. listening to audiobooks i've been way more patient with my kids in so many ways and i think i was talking to my partner about it because she was like why are you doing such a good job with the kids <laughs> <laughs> it's own characteristic <laughs> <laughs> yeah Hey, what's going on? What's go- <laughs> Are you leaving us? Like, what? Why are you so nice? <laughs> Just leaving a nice lasting impression. Um, but I think part of it is, at least for me, when I see films that really resonate with me or just films that I really fall in love with, I kind of just want to live in that world mm. for as long as possible. And in some ways, I kind of mourn losing that world once the film ends. And I think for this film, it was like the complete opposite of that, where the film ended and I was like, oh shit, I'm living in this world every single day because it was such an accurate representation of parenthood and how beautiful it is, but also just how hard it is, like the day in, day out grind of it and i was just completely moved by it as was the filmmaker during the interview obviously yeah taylor and i were were i think we both shed a few tears during the movie dude the whole time i had ugly cry face (laughs) (laughs) i almost you know what i thought that i thought you might have like ugly cry face so i didn't want to look over at you because then i would cry (laughs) you know if i saw you crying i'd be like <laughs> but it just, yeah, it just moved us deeply uh, just because we have kids. And uh, that movie, while it's about an uncle and his nephew, a lot of it is based on Mike Mills and his, his real life son. Mm. Uh, so a lot of those moments um, just really ring true. And Mike Mills was there at the festival and he had a really emotional um, Q&A afterwards. Yeah. Where he was, I mean, overall, he was just touched that people that the film resonated with other people because that's his life. He's right. being very vulnerable, putting a lot of these moments up on screen. So he was moved that he didn't know if people were going to like the movie because it's just almost like him just being raw and being like, this is what, these are some of the mistakes I've made mm-hmm. as a dad, but yeah. this is some of the, these are some of the most beautiful moments I've had as a father as well. Very personal. And everyone loved it. And we were giving him like standing ovation and stuff. So yeah. It was cool. And you got to interview him the next day. How was that? Yeah, I, I interviewed him one-on-one the next morning. And again, like, uh, you know, it was emotional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I'm not going to like 
call him out, but it got emotional. And you got emotional. <laughs> I got emotional. He got emotional, and uh, I'm very grateful to have uh, you know seen that movie and spent time with him. So uh, it's not out yet. No. I believe it comes out in December. I think it's November. November. Because I've been counting the days because I was telling my partner like you got to watch this film because I feel like it clearly for the past week has changed me. I've we'll see how long this good parenting thing lasts for me, but at least for the past week I've been on it. And uh, so I just really want her to, to see it because I think for, I mean, we've talked about this, but it was just such a, I think a validating film for parents. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like a work at home dad. Like my primary mm. job to me is, is raising my kids. I, I watch my kids all day. And so, um, the movie gave me a real, you know, sense of recognition. Like, this is a hard job, man. Like, it's hard to watch kids. Um, and so watching that movie, I felt, yeah, yeah. Like, I felt uh, seen. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, yeah, it was awesome. That that whole week. So all last week, I was at this film festival. It's a 10-day festival. I was there pretty much every day. And yeah. I was doing, so. so if you're not from the Bay Area, I'm in kind of like the North Bay. And the festival's in Marin, which is across a bridge across the bay. And then a lot of the interviews I did, or all the interviews I did, were in San Francisco. None of these three places are close to each other. So I, <laughs> I was driving. I literally, my car broke down from all this driving. Right. Yeah. Um, so it was a long week, and hence the kind of delay in the podcast. No, I think it was, I mean, it was cool just as your friend to watch you kind of on the grind and see what your life was like because it's a grind man but cool though I, i'll never it is cool know, it's a cool job a it cool is job. cool it is a really cool job and i think being in that theater with uh, at the end while we're watching come on come on it's so magical man like i feel so grateful when i'm like yeah. in a moment like that at the theater yeah. and like the filmmakers there and it's you know people if you guys if you haven't been to a film festival wherever you live you should go and meet these filmmakers i mean it, you know literally could be life changing. Like clearly, it affected you, Taylor, um, and and how you're leading your life. Um, yeah, it affected you in a positive way. So I encourage anybody, you know, go go watch a go to a film festival um, and watch a film and, and talk to the filmmaker. They'd be happy to talk to you. Oh, did, have you seen um, the new Dave Chang show on Hulu? Oh man, it just got released like today. Was didn't it today? It? Yeah. <laughs> well, I meant to watch it today, but I didn't okay. get around to it. It it looks awesome. What's it called again? No idea. I just heard, I was just listening to his interview with Marin, and it was like amazing. Yeah, we need him, man. Bourdain's gone. Exactly. That's exactly exactly. I think he. Nobody can fill Bourdain's shoes. I, I wept when Bourdain died. I still remember like coming home from work that day because I had just started my job in a completely different industry from food, so I was already feeling out of place and like I was sacrificing so much of who I was and like that day. It was like my first day at the, wow. on the job. My coworker turns to me and says, Oh man, I'm sorry about Bourdain. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I, uh, you know, I found out about it and I kind of held it in all day. I came home, you know, I saw my partner and she was like, I'm sorry. And man, I still remember just like, man, all the emotions. Cause yeah. there was nobody that was like him, you know? And when somebody like Bourdain, I think he resonated with people like me in some ways of like teaching you, like, you can make it through this shit and be okay. And when someone like that says, I'm not okay, like, it's a lot, man. Yeah. And that's actually what Dave Chain talks about now, is that when Bourdain died, he felt a responsibility to step up and to talk, and to talk about his own struggles with mental health, because that's not really something that Bourdain talked about directly Yeah, that much, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And he's a very private person. Chang was like, saw it as like his duty basically to be like, I'm going to talk about it all. 
and in some ways like he has taken the baton from from Bourdain and has carried the conversation forward. It's great, man. Yeah. It's great. You know, like one of us. Yeah. I mean, I love that guy. I know. I know, man. Me too. Uh, Dave Chang, such an important voice right now. I got to see that show, whatever the fuck it's called. (laughs) This is a great plug for his show. Yeah, yeah, we refuse Uh, to name it. We don't know what it's called. What do you think it's called? (laughs) (laughs) What's my best Uh, guess? But I think the word I think the word eat is in there somewhere. I don't even know what the theme of the show is. Me neither. But he's one of those people that I just That's trust. what I'm saying. It's I like just a trust. Dave Chang show. Yeah. yeah I trust man. him. You know. He, he's awesome. And uh speaking of food. Uh oh. It's that time. So last week <laughs> last week I tried something out. Agreed. Did a, I just uh I just uh <laughs> I took a risk last week, (laughs) and I debuted a segment that I have now named. It's titled, (laughs) Taylor's Takes. (laughs) Taylor's Takes. Oh, it's good. It's good. (laughs) So Taylor's Takes is a segment in which I asked Taylor, who was a food obsessive, former butcher, veteran of the food industry about different subjects within food and get his reactions. This is exciting, man. This is our first official segment. We're really growing as podcasters. Yeah, this is like the first step to the big time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Taylor Stakes. I can't come in and do it. Taylor And I may or may not have purposefully picked these <laughs> buzzwords <laughs> with the intention of infuriating my good friend here. <laughs> so, here we go. Taylor Stakes. I'm going to run some of these by you. Um, Cheez-Its. Softball. There's a, there's a little lob here. A little song. You know, I'm playing softball here. Start. Just trying to butter me up. Cheez-its. Yeah, I love Cheez-Its. Is, is that all? Well, I think it's like, to me... Cheez-Its are the best. They're like legit, like a perfect cracker. Like it's like a perfect cracker. Yeah, I mean, I think the only problem with the Cheez-It is that, you know, it stands alone, right? Like there's not much you can you can do with the cheese it because it's so delicious by itself. Where other crackers, you might put a little bit of tuna fish, mm. a little sardine, a little. You mustard. don't put tuna fish on your cheeses. I don't put tuna fish on my cheese. That actually doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> Does that sound bad? It doesn't. But I love cheeses, and I mean they're objectively delicious. I think the only people that think that they're not delicious are probably just lying to themselves, right? I think um, that's the thing. I think a lot of people would say that Cheez-Its are like, again, like we talked about last time, like shitty food or low quality, like uh, trashy food. Yeah, man. See, now you're starting. <laughs> now now you're throwing. <laughs> it's a low rent snack. You know? It's for- kind of for poor people you know <laughs> everyone says this everyone says this about cheeses yeah i mean i get it like no don't get me wrong like nabisco is a horrific company run by horrific people most likely i've never met any of them but you know you read like their concern is not deliciousness it's profitability and they're gonna get it by making the most delicious right. thing that they possibly can and throw science at it. Like that's the thing that people don't realize is how much research goes into this shit. Like, of course it's going to taste delicious because it's designed to go after everything you love. Right. And I love it. You know, grown in a lab. Okay. Let's move on. This one, I'm actually not sure how you're going to react to. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of a specific thing. 
Okay. But, you know, as it pertains to barbecue and meat in general. Okay. When meat falls off the bone. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? How do you feel about that? It depends, man. Mm. Like, it depends. It's like, where? what's the preparation? Like, I, for for barbecue specifically, right? it shouldn't fall off the bone. It should come off the bone so let's, that's, easily. That's kind of what I was talking yeah. about. Let's just say barbecue then. It shouldn't fall off the bone. There needs to be some texture. Like, if it falls off the bone, you've, you've done too much. Mm. Like, it absolutely should be tender. It should come easily off the bone, but it shouldn't fall off the bone. Should be glistening, beautifully be glistening. rendered fat. Exactly, all that stuff. But if it um, if it falls off the bone, you've you've gone way too far. I think that's like one of the grossest things. Mm. When I get like some ribs, then I pick up the fucking thing, the rib, and then the meat stays there, and I just lift the rib, and I'm holding this naked yeah. rib. <laughs> It's like, no, I want to bite the meat off the rib. That's like one of the most beautiful yeah. things about it, right? Yeah, it's also like you lose the, like, there's no technique in that either, right? Like, mm. like I barbecue semi-regularly, and anytime it falls off the bone, I feel such a deep shame. Wow. <laughs> like, it means, like, either I was distracted with the kids, or, like, I went out and the heat got too high without me noticing or whatever. Wow. But like, it's shameful. It's shameful. Meat that falls off the bone, shameful. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. This is awesome. Okay, this one, I'm also not sure. There are some here that I, I'm pretty sure how they'll react. But this one, I'm not sure. Bologna. <clears throat> oh, it's great. Love bologna. I mean, I don't eat it now, but I think that's partially because I made a lot of really fancy bologna or like mortadella. Mm. I was going to say mortadella, but is so is that bologna? I mean, bologna is a bastardized version of, of mortadella. So it's technically, it's not <clears throat> bologna. Or, or is bologna mortadella? No. No, bologna's like, I'm going to throw something at a wall, and <laughs> it's going to kind of be like mortadella, but we're trying to appeal to like the American palate yeah. at the same time. God forbid they see any fat. <laughs> fat or pistachios or peppercorns or whatever. They're completely homogenous. <clears throat> right, exactly. It's just like, it's like a hot dog. It's a giant hot dog. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I think there's just too many um, fond memories there. And like if someone mm. if someone made like fried bologna for me with like on you know for breakfast, I'd eat it all up for sure. Yeah. See, I pretty much agree with you. I I, I would say that now I'm I'm not like really looking to eat bologna. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I, that's a good point. I do have fond memories of bologna. One more. I mean, I guess I'm giving you like a lot of softballs here, man. Not so hard <laughs> hitting nervous. this time. <laughs> Sun-dried tomatoes. Oh, fuck them. So gross. <laughs> They're the worst. Is there an ingredient out there that throws off a dish more <laughs> than sun-dried tomatoes? No, I... Yeah. <laughs> sun-dried tomatoes. It's a crutch. It's a cr- mm. I feel... Hopefully my partner doesn't listen to this because she loves the shit out of some sun-dried tomatoes and we'll put it in everything. But like... Yeah, man. They shouldn't. They they definitely shouldn't be <laughs> be used as much as they are. I mean, they're like, I don't know. They hurt my mouth. Like when I eat them, they hurt. <sighs> There's so many things that are delicious. Like uh, real tomatoes are delicious. Roasted tomatoes. Roasted are tomatoes are also delicious. Delicious. Sun dried tomatoes are just like they're leather. I mean, yeah, it's like. And it doesn't taste like a tomato anymore. It's just like this oddly sweet thing that and they're like tannic. Like they, it's yeah. like uh, it's like I'm eating like a sour patch kit or something. Yeah, it's just I'm like what? Like what? What, what just happened yeah. to my mouth? I mean, they should only exist in pasta salads, and even then, they shouldn't exist in pasta salads. 
I bet there are some like good applications of sun-dried tomatoes that exist in the universe, but I just you just never see it. you only see them used like in horrific ways. Yeah. They're at like they're a potluck staple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like I'm never feeding my kids that shit. You know, I mean, my partner will, but they're not getting that from old old Papa. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Papa's seen come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for real, man. Better I'm better now. Would never feed my kids sun-dried tomatoes. Also shameful, yeah. <laughs> it is actually shameful. God, that was a good one, man. Taylor's takes. Taylor's takes. <laughs> oh, man. Favorite part of the show. I'm going to get some shit from my partner if she listens to this episode, even though she doesn't listen to any of the episodes. But uh, Yeah, I think we might be good. My partner doesn't listen to <laughs> Why would they? Why would they? <laughs> They they hear enough of our shit yeah. on a day to day basis. <laughs> yeah. No. Like I think my partner's sole purpose in life is not to hear Taylor's takes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a nightmare. For her. Yeah. <laughs> <She's>... <laughs> it's like it's like no. Taylor's takes. I hear Taylor's takes all day. (laughs) God, same, same. Oh my God. It'd be like torture for my partner. But anyway, dude, I want to tell you Mm -hmm. about Wes Anderson's new film. Yeah. The the French Dispatch, which I watched at the Mill Valley Film Festival. Are you a fan of Wes Anderson? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That, I mean, I think he's very good at what he does. And I don't always like that thing that he does. I tend to agree with you. Um, I love his the craft of his films, <laughs> the way they look, the way they move, the way they sound. Um, just really like jaw droppingly beautiful yeah. sets and and uh, cinematography, framing, camera work. Uh, I love the craft of his films, and I love his casts. I oh, love yeah. the players that he worked, his little troupe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's not about this, but I don't like his dialogue. I'll just say that. <laughs> I don't like the way his dialogue sounds. Yeah, it's unnatural. I mean, I think the reason why I go to the movies is to have experiences like, come on, come on. And I never, or I've never to this point, had an experience like that watching the Wes Anderson yeah, it's not. They're a distinctly not real world feeling yeah. movies. Yeah, they're totally. not like slice of life yeah, <laughs> films. Yeah, they're yeah, like yeah. these little confections of like, yeah, you know, beautiful uh, imagery and which and he's a, he's stories. a master at it. Like, yeah, he's, he's really good. really really good at it. And it's just one of those things where like, if I'm in the mood for it, I'll watch it. But it's never going to be like the. It's never going to be the reason why. Yeah, I I go to the movies. You know. Yeah, I mean, I love, I do love watching his f- movies in the theater. Uh, they're just so, so gorgeous, and uh, I, I like his films a lot. But I think, I, yeah, the dialogue's a hang up for me. But anyways, his latest film, The French Dispatch, is really clever. Um, it's, it's kind of, um, it's a fictional. It takes place in a fictional <laughs> French uh, town called Ennui, which, which is so, so this, funny. This already sounds like the most Wes Anderson <laughs> yeah. movie. A town called Ennui. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, uh, it's about an outpost of an American, um, publication in this little French fictional French town. Mm-hmm. So Bill, Bill Murray runs this magazine mm-hmm. called the French dispatch, which is based in Kansas. Like they, <laughs> mm. their publication is based in Kansas, but they have an outpost in Ennui. Mm-hmm. And the film is an anthology film, and it's mm. ma- made up of several little stories. Okay, and each story represents an article in the magazine. So mm. it's like you're reading the magazine, yeah. and each story is written by one of the the writers at the at the um, at the publication. And it's kind of like a his. I think he described it as his love letter to journalists, which is like pretty cool. 
<laughs> pretty cool for you, buddy. Pretty cool for me. <laughs> what a, like... <laughs> he won my heart with this what one. A good, what a good way to, to, <laughs> to just get good reviews. Good reviews, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so... It's a tremendous ensemble cast. Uh-huh. Like some of the like regular players are there. Bill Murray, um, Jason Schwartzman makes an appearance. Uh, Owen Wilson, mm-hmm. Adrian Brody, Jeffrey Wright. It goes on and on. Like huge, right. terrific cast. And one of the, to me, the most memorable scene in the film belongs to Stephen Park, mm-hmm. who I mentioned earlier in the episode, who I talked to uh, for this for this movie. Um, he plays a chef in the movie, Chef Nescafe. <laughs> oh, God. And he's, uh, I think he's in the, the final story in the film, but he has, without spoiling anything, he just has a beautiful moment where he, he has these lines of dialogue where he's talking about, um, I don't know, just like, existential stuff mm-hmm. like life affirming stuff. And it's a close up on his face mm-hmm. on Stephen Park's face. Who's Asian American. And a lot of this movie is like these really pulled out, zoomed out shots of this beautiful town and stuff, you know, Wes Anderson stuff. And then the most memorable close up of the entire movie is on Stephen Park. Mm-hmm. The end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Awesome to see that for such a good actor and an Asian American actor at that. So me and Steven had a conversation about what it's like to be an Asian actor mm-hmm. in uh, in the industry today. So if you guys aren't familiar with Steven, which he's he probably not, because he's not like a super popular actor. You Would know? you categorize him as like a character actor? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's like a character actor, but he's, but he's like not that prolific Mm. um he actually talks about that um he talked about that in our conversation but i think his most memorable role to me was in fargo you've seen fargo Mm -hmm. so he's the asian guy who comes on to march gunderson in the restaurant yeah (laughs) and um what's really interesting about that scene is that it was actually quite controversial at the time in fargo it came out in 1996 Mm. And his character, uh, Mike Yanagata, I believe, mm-hmm. was his character's name. He hits on Marge Gunderson. <laughs> right. Uh, on Marge Gunderson in the movie. Um, uh, uh, Francis McDormand mm-hmm. plays Marge Gunderson. And uh, he's kind of this pathetic, right? you know, old friend of Marge who's trying to come on to her when she's pregnant with, like, seven months pregnant. Yeah. And he's trying to hit on her in this sad restaurant. Yeah. He's just, like, kind of this bug of a like little insect of a man mm-hmm. really pathetic and i guess at the time the asian american community hated him for doing this for playing this role oh interesting because they claimed that it perpetuated the stereotype of the weak asian man mm. in film so he caught flack for this hmm. here's steven talking about that scene in, in fargo I got a little criticized for that, you know, because people, a lot of Asian Americans perceive, like, here's this pathetic, lonely guy, like, and then they uh, felt I was perpetuating the stereotype of the kind of weak Asian man, you know, so I did hear that. I mean, this is something I said in a, the Entertainment Weekly interview about him, that I think the fact that he was so lonely and desperate um, that those qualities transcend race. And I think that's why that character resonated for so many people, uh, because we all experience that. So in that way, he trans- transcends race because he's um, suffering the human condition, you know. So it's a very human. And the fact that he was part of the community, he spoke in the dialect, he was uh, a high school a classmate, you know, and there is a Japanese American community up there in Minnesota. So um, I believe that a, a lot of the characters in Fargo were named after people that were, that Joel and Ethan grew up with. Okay, so I don't feel, do you feel that? Well, what's your reaction to that scene if you remember it? I do remember it. The moment you said that that was um, one of his most memorable films um 
I can have, I have like the image in my head almost, almost instantly of him. I didn't, it didn't come that, it did not come across that way to me at all. I would say, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. Yeah, me neither. That's actually why I brought up the question. My question was about that scene because what I remember when I saw that when I was younger was I was so impressed that this Asian American character was not defined by his Asianness. Absolutely. <laughs> he's just a sad guy. Sure. Yeah. He's a pathetic guy. Yeah. But he has a, a Minnesotan accent, you know, yeah. that funny ass mm-hmm. accent. He's from Minnesota. He's American. They don't really talk about him being Asian. And yeah. he's his whole story is just he's this pathetic old friend who's hitting on Marge. Yeah. In the, in this and it's so it's so resonant because we've maybe all either felt like him or we've had someone oh, yeah. come on to us that's like that, you know? Yeah. It's really relatable scene. And yeah. uh Steven agreed. He was like in response to the backlash, he was like, listen. This transcends race. Yeah. Sure. You know, like, because everyone's felt like this before. It's why your character and that scene resonates with so many people, because we've all felt like that. Oh, totally. That's why it makes you so uncomfortable when you're watching that <laughs> scene. <laughs> it's relatable, right? Yeah, it's totally relatable. You have a crush on someone and it's not reciprocated. Oh, it's the worst. You're like a chump. It's the worst. You're cringing because you yeah. know you know he's he, he has no chance, you know? Yeah. He happened to be Asian, that character, and and but he's like a human being, and that's kind of like all we want as Asian people, right? Asian American people is for us people who look like us to be portrayed as like three dimensional, real feeling human beings. Yeah, and that's what that was. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's and that's something that we've talked about on this show is like that's really all you're looking for is dimensionality right like that's all you're looking for it doesn't have to be like you don't have to be the hero in every movie you don't have to be this um most handsome guy in the world the most handsome guy in the world you just have to be representative of real life and not a caricature of what uh white people think you are and then that's true representation so his career he's like i said before he's not like the most prolific or like prominent like asian actor out there Mm-hmm. But he mentioned that there's like this weird Mandela effect with him, hmm. kind of, where people think that he's been blacklisted from Hollywood. Oh, interesting. Just because he's, in reality, he's just like not getting as many offers yeah. as maybe he wants or or that would keep him in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. But he talked about how Bobby Lee. Oh, my boy. Your boy, Bobby <laughs> Lee. Mentioned on his podcast, Tiger Belly, uh-huh. that Stephen Park was blacklisted. So, so here's a clip of Stephen talking about what Bobby Lee said on his podcast. Not too long ago, I was, to, oh, it was like Bobby Lee, that, that kind of, that he was on his uh, podcast, Tiger Belly. He was with Margaret Cho, and then he brought up my name, and he said, you know, he got kicked out of Hollywood. <laughs> And then there was another guy who I met, an Asian American guy, who also like told me like they thought that he thought I got blacklisted. And there, then I realized, oh, this is kind of a common. A lot of people thought that about me, and I never was blacklisted or never right. was aware that that even people thought that, you know. So, do you think they thought he was blacklisted because of that initial initial? Reaction from the Asian American community about his role in Fargo? Well, I think that, I don't know. I think people might think he was blacklisted because his roles were so memorable. Uh, and he doesn't get, but he's not like in a lot of movies. Yeah. So they're like, what happened to that guy? I bet he got blacklisted. <laughs> okay. So here's what, here's another thing that happened in 1997. He wrote, um, a letter mm-hmm. kind of calling out the industry for how they treat Asian American actors. Uh-huh. It's like this, it was like this, um, I forget what he called it. Like a, not a call to action, but something like that. And he talked about how he was on set 
on Friends, mm. which was like the biggest sitcom at the time. And he heard like one of the directors or something talk in reference to another Asian actor on the show saying like, where, where is he? Where, we need him on set right now. Where is that guy? Yoshi, Toshi, whoever, whatever the fuck his name is, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he was just so grossed out by this. And he was so upset at how Asian actors are portrayed that he wrote this letter kind of um, that was like an indictment of the industry. So I think maybe people knowing that he did that kind of put two and two together in their heads and said he got blacklisted because he did that. Is he sure he wasn't blacklisted from Hollywood? Because, I mean, that is really <laughs> impressive. I mean, already, cool? it's amazing. Already being in an underrepresented community in Hollywood and having the guts to speak out against that. In the 90s. In the 90s, right? It's it's pretty incredible. I mean, I mean, it's a testament to to how little representation people have in the fact that they just assume that he was blacklisted when really it was just like he's an Asian actor in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's and how bad it is. It's like no, he wasn't blacklisted. He's just an Asian actor, so they don't they don't get cast in anything. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, because I I. I also asked him about like, you know, cause his roles are so good. He always does such a good job. And I'm like, you, and he never does like stereotypical stuff. Yeah. Asian stuff. Like he was a, he was a grocery store owner and do the right thing, but do the right thing is anything but a, right. you know, like a trashy yeah. racist movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, and then he was like, no, basically just says, I don't just don't get a lot of offers. That's why I'm mm. not being me being that selective. Oh, okay. You know, he's just like, I don't get a lot of offers. <laughs> but what's so exciting now is that he's in this big movie, the yeah. French dispatch, and he's, he's got a spotlight in the movie, really wonderful scene. And he's actually filming Wes Anderson's next movie right now. Oh, it's amazing. So he's been brought into the Wes Anderson family. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. I mean, I think, you know, from all the early buzz around this movie, it does feel like it's, uh, hopefully it opens up even more doors for him. I feel like it probably will, if not just for his roles in Wes Anderson movies. Like, it's pretty exciting. So I talked to Stephen about the state of the industry now for Asian actors and Asian filmmakers, and he's, you know, pretty bullish about it. He mentioned Squid Game. Um, he talked about Bong Joon-ho and Parasite. Uh, it's a really exciting time, and, and he's, I think he's happy to be a part of it. Here's him uh, talking about what it's like to be an Asian actor in Hollywood right now. You watch Squid Game? It's like another Korean show. They're speaking Korean, and it's, all, it's a huge hit around the world. So what is that? There's something that's breaking down, whatever barriers that prevented us from... I love what uh, director Bong said, uh, was at the Golden Globes or one of those shows about, um, you know, if you can get beyond the, the, the one-inch subtitles, uh, mm, and mm. That, that, then all of cinema, world cinema is available to you. If you can just get over having to read subtitles. And I thought that was... There's something prophetic about him saying that because here we are, where Squid Game is a huge hit, Parasite, you know, and these are movies that were subtitled, and and but but speaking to the human condition and things that we all relate to, um, so language and race and th- these don't need to be barriers anymore. You know, we're all we're all the same. We're, you know what I mean? It's it's um, it's silly all of these things that we we use to separate ourselves from each other. So I think. Um, especially now that we're, we're in this existential crisis of uh, global warming that, you know, I don't know, how long do we have here on the planet? Do we wanna, do we wanna fight each other and, and mm. hold on to these ignorant point of, points of view to the bitter end? Is that, is that the hill you wanna die on? I mean, it's, 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 uh, just, um, it's just human ignorance and, and uh, yeah, it's just unnecessary. And, uh, we need to um, see ourselves in, in each other, you know. So what do you think about what he said there? <laughs> Jesus, that's a lot to process. It's heavy, huh? Yeah. But it's true. It's true. It's like, it's like uh, to partake and experience 
to partake in and experience other cultures' art is like one of the most powerful forms of empathy, right? Oh, yeah. So I think he's he's absolutely right that it's silly that a lot of Americans just don't watch world cinema because of subtitles. Yeah. So, or that I guess director Bong said that Bong Joon-ho said that, but he, he was echoing that sentiment. And I think, I think he's right. I, I, it's awesome now that Parasite can win best picture, that Bong Joon-ho can win best director. And that Squid Game is literally the biggest show Netflix has ever produced. Is it really the biggest show? Yeah. Wow. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> and here we are, two Asian Americans that just can't <laughs> just can't get into it. Um, yeah, we don't have the time for that. We don't have the time no. for Squid Game. <laughs> don't have the time. <laughs> Great for the community, but leave it to the community. Yeah, I'll get around to it, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's. It, I think it's very true. I mean, I think. Uh, it's really what we talk about all the time of why representation matters so much because it's such an integral conduit to empathy, right? Like it's such a powerful form to um, get you to understand the human experience at a level that you might not have before you entered the cinema, right? And it's really cool to see that like people are starting to do that with um, these Asian filmmakers, whether they're, you know, Asian American or not. Like, I think it's uh, it's an exciting time for for the community at large. Yeah. And it's cool to see somebody like Stephen Park getting the spotlight he deserves and in a movie like this in the French dispatch and, and Wes's next movie, which I'm sure will be a big deal as well. Um, if I, I told, I told Steven, you know, to his face, you know, I could imagine you being up on that podium, you know, sometime in the near future, honestly, like he's so good. And now he's getting his, his flowers mm-hmm. as the kids say, uh, with this big movie and another big movie to come and hopefully even more. So, Look out for Stephen Park. I think he's going to be on uh, movie screens and TV screens in a bigger way than he ever has been before, and that's cool. All right, so now on to a topic that Taylor and I are pretty knowledgeable on, (laughs) which which is growing up Asian in a white-ass town. Oh, yeah. Uh, We both grew up in the Bay Area. And predominantly, or at least in our childhood, we, we, we lived in a small white town where there yeah. weren't a lot of people of color. Yeah. I mean, I moved to that small white town when I was like six months old. So I would say I know nothing else but growing up in a mm. small mm. white town. Um, and yeah, I mean, I... Where do we begin? Where do we yeah, begin? Where, yeah, yeah, tell me. Tell me, where do we begin on this Well, one? let's begin with like you and I meeting because we met yeah. when we were pretty young, like what, like 13, 14 years old. Shit, I was probably 12. 12. There, there weren't a lot of like people of color at our school. Yeah. Um, and I think we became friends because we were just like, Oh, another Brown person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we were just like, Hey, hey. Yeah. No, totally man. Asian. Yeah. Asian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of bizarre to think of it. And that's, I think the hardest part about growing up in a white town during the time that we did is trying to convey to people like you're normal. Well, you're normal, but even I think trying to convey to people now what that was like, because Mm. I think if you, if you pulled most like Bay Area uh, residents on, you know, how hard is it to be an Asian American in the Bay Area? They probably would 
if they were being truthful, um, say, not that hard. There's a bunch of them. Right. <laughs> you know, but like it was super isolating during the time that we grew up. Okay. So we had like kind of probably different experiences uh, growing up in that town because um, while I, I did go to school in that town, a lot of my time I spent in San Francisco uh, mm-hmm. growing up. Uh, when I wasn't in school, like on the weekends and over the summers, I was in San Francisco where there were lots of Asians. And I was able to, you know, I was hanging out around my family and my my friends out there. Mm-hmm. So, and so I had that dichotomy where outside of school, I felt okay. Cause like I was around other Asians and right. they weren't judging me for being Asian, obviously. Mm-hmm. But at school, yeah, I think we had a similar experience where we were, um, Always looked at differently. Oh, yeah, man. Sometimes not in an offensive way. No. I mean, in some ways, I think it made me just way more forgiving Mm. for people that just don't understand when or when they're not being offensive. Um, Like self-awareness. Yeah. I mean, I, I had friends that said offensive shit, but it wasn't mean-spirited. It was just they didn't know, right? And Mm, That's a good point. There's a big difference there when you think about intent, you know? And I think about that a lot, especially in today's culture of like, okay, is this person willfully ignorant or are they just not educated? Because if they're just not educated. Like a good way for them not to learn is for you to yell at them and tell them that they're wrong. And I think growing up in a small white town, like you don't have the room to not be patient with your friends that don't know all the things, right? You don't have many other options. You can't just go to your other wide Asian community, right? Because it didn't exist. So you just spent time with them and you love them and you try to get them to understand your perspective just by living your like authentic self. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. And another way I would say it is there are a lot of people of color who grow up in communities where they are, aren't the minority, right? Like they grew up, like you're Asian, grew up in an Asian town or like Korean Mm -hmm. town or whatever. Or if you're black and grew up in a black neighborhood. But I think you're right. I think the kind of, to me, the gift of growing up in a white town when you're a person of color is that you acquired that empathy in the long run, right? Because the reality is like, like you were saying, there were a lot of kids that said racist shit and ignorant shit to me and around me like mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. But the fact was that I also could easily acknowledge that these are, they were my friends. Right. They were, they were my friends. I love them and they love me. And, and I, I you know, whereas if someone would grow up in a community of color, they might just view white people as like the opposition or the enemy or like, are you so annoyed with like white people or right. whatever? You and I were forced to get along with white people who were at times ignorant, at times racist, but we developed that, I, not a skill, but just like that experience where we can forgive someone for not being woke or whatever to our experience. Like it's absurd for a person of color, any marginalized person to expect white people to just understand everything they're going through <laughs> right. somehow. And we know that yeah. because we grew up around white people. I think that's good. Yeah, I and I think that's uh that's applicable to everybody, right? Like nobody should just expect that anybody should just understand their experience. And you only get close to people's experience by listening and um forgiving and creating space for people to make mistakes. Right. And any better yet, being friends with them. And being friends with them. That's the best way to learn. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You're different. You come from different places or you come from different backgrounds. But if you're friends with someone 
that takes precedence over whatever um whatever um dissonance there is culturally yeah yeah, yeah. you know like we had white friends where they would say like dumb shit to right. us but first of, we wouldn't but we weren't like you know quote unquote canceling them in our personal lives we were just like eh, that was a stupid thing to say <laughs> but you know <laughs> right. yeah they're an idiot but so am i we're friends <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, we're yeah, like yeah. we're in fucking fifth grade so right <laughs> you know we're thinking about that so it was good. Yeah, that's a great point you make. You know that it, that's a good thing that that we uh, we were acquired that that experience. Yeah, I mean, I also just think it it gives you, you know, outside of it just being a small white town, it's like a pretty suburbia, right? So it's not like this cultural epicenter people don't have access Mm. to all the knowledge that other people might have they might not be as progressive as other people might be and i think it also taught me to just live with the differences that i had with my friends we didn't agree on everything and it wasn't important for us to agree on everything yeah, your relationship wasn't defined by your political views <laughs> right <Except laughs> it should never be it should, it should never, never be, be right that way. i think the most important thing is your relationship is founded on a trust that the other person's trying as hard as they can right and they care about you and they care about you even when they say the wrong thing even when they say the wrong thing or they think the wrong thing right. or you might think that they think the wrong thing as long as they're putting in the work to get to that place, like that's all that matters, right? Like I respect somebody way more if they have a differing opinion than me, but they put in a lot of thought and effort in coming to whatever conclusion that they came than somebody that just hops on whatever bandwagon their click right. is, is, you know, pushing at a given moment. Right. Um, and I think honestly that came from my experience of living in a town with people that I didn't agree with and, you know, white people are going to be fine whether they're, you know, have access to our perspectives or not. Like they, they got, they got a good deal in this country. Right. You know, what's really interesting because I have some friends from that town still like a handful i have like two (laughs) (laughs) i don't i actually don't have many more from that town in my life but it from talking to them and this is not a knock on them at all yeah but i get the sense that they think that that town was way more progressive than it was Oh, for sure. They think, because <laughs> yeah. it is a Bay Area town. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It wasn't like some hick town when we were getting stones no. thrown at us or anything. <laughs> like, it was, a, we're in the Bay Area, right? right like, it right, was, right. in ways, it was progressive. But yeah. from my white friends who grew up with us, I get the sense that a lot of them have the perspective that that town was, like, super progressive and, like, diverse. Oh, I'm sure they do. Because they weren't subject to the same shit right, that we were subject right. to. It's right. you know? so fascinating. I don't blame yeah. them for that. I don't blame them for having that perspective. No, no. I mean, uh, for sure that they do. Um, and I think that some of the same shit that I come up against now when I try to explain to people what my experience was growing up in that town. Because people just put this blanket statement of, like, Bay Area is woke, right? Yeah. And it's just not true. Even right. in the most progressive cities, like... People might say the right things, but they never do the right things. Yeah, there was that funny joke that I saw um, when when a lot when the George Floyd stuff was happening, where in the Bay Area, the more Black Lives Matters posters you see, the less likely you are to see actual Black people walking around. Oh, for that sure. Neighborhood. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I think we actually had to like walk our values, right? Like we couldn't just talk about them. Like we had to confront them every single day yeah, and yeah. use them. 
Whereas other people in progressive cities, like they don't actually have to use them. It's just a topic of conversation. (laughs) It's just a topic of conversation. Like you're never actually faced with any confrontation. Right. Right. And that's honestly why I moved back to, frankly, another like small white town. It's like I wanted my kids to have to deal with differences of opinion. Like I wanted them to develop that skill set because that's something that I really valued mm. growing up in that mm. town. As painful as it was at some times, like I know it served me well. I know it still serves me well of just like understanding how to coexist with people and have differences of opinion and still see each other as human beings, right? First and foremost. Yeah. 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 You know, I, you know, I guess just to cap this off, I had a great time growing up in that town. I really did. I had a great childhood. Mm-hmm. I'm going to school there and, and hanging out with friends later on. Like I think in high school was when I was more like hanging out in and around that town mm-hmm. um, and actually going out like prior to high school, I would just hang out in like San Francisco <laughs> yeah. whatever, like uh, my free time. Um, but as I got older, I, I, you know, growing up in that town was awesome. Really? Like it really was. It was just, I think it's in hindsight, really fascinating to, access some of these memories and realize how fucking racist they were. Yeah, man. It's weird. I mean, they asked me, uh, one, one parent asked me if I'd ever had pancakes before. <laughs> what the fuck? I don't even like, what do you think? Does your family eat pancakes? Yeah, we fucking eat pancakes. What do you mean? It's pancakes. I mean, like, <laughs> what you said is totally true. Like, yeah, like, and I completely resonate with all of it. Like, I had a great childhood, and I, I loved it. Like, I, and I'm really thankful for right. the experiences I had. But, like, you know, the catalyst to this podcast was... Um, as you and I were talking about, like the catalyst to starting this podcast in the first place was you and I talking about growing up Asian in that small town. And for me, like the spate of like anti-Asian violence and the Asian American experience being spotlighted for first time in my lifetime that I can really remember it caused me to really confront a lot of the shit that happened in that town. Yeah. yeah. And it made me really uncomfortable. So like as much as I enjoyed my childhood and I'm thankful for it, like I also don't want to discount the trauma that probably happened in that town that I'm still honestly unpacking. Yeah, man. It's it's weird. It's it's almost like uh I don't know. It's it's almost like a lot of the memories I have I altered in my mind to mm. hide the racial undercurrents. Yeah. I think I was aware of them when I was a kid, but I just choose to not remember them that way, but now as I think back, it's almost like I had been repressing yeah <laughs> all of this stuff and now i'm like oh shit like that friend said that to me and and mm-hmm. you know that parent asked me if i'd ever had a pancake <laughs> <laughs> oh man so guys we're gonna be definitely returning to um you know our memories of growing up in this town tales of Shitty white town. <laughs> no, it was, it was a, it's a beautiful town. I, 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 it's a really nice town. It I is. don't want to shit on that town, but it was weird for us, and and we'll share more stories. Um, thank you guys, thank you guys for hanging out with us and letting us unpack all of our baggage here. We've got quite a bit. We've got quite a bit. Um, yeah. and, and we'll be back. We'll be back soon to to continue to. I don't know. 
make a true on our promise of making this a bi-weekly podcast because we've really failed at that. <laughs> yeah, man. First it was weekly, then it was bi-weekly, now it's tri-weekly. Tri-weekly. <laughs> it's There's be no such thing as a tri-weekly podcast. Semi-annual. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, like a sale. Semi-annual podcast. I was like, oh, I can't wait. Here it comes. And then we just end up talking about cheeses. <laughs> but uh, thank you guys so much uh, for joining us and sticking around to the end. I'm Bernard. And I'm Taylor. And we're your Asian best friends. We'll see you soon. So long.